Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right. Now, whenever you're ready. But I do want to thank the, uh, the Dominicans for the uh, invitation again. Uh, I want to thank Lauren for her help, Father Jonas for his help. Um, you've been wonderful, wonderful hosts, and uh, I've enjoyed my time here, which is not over yet, but nevertheless, it's maybe the last time I'm speaking. All right. The priest as sinner in the thought of St. Augustine. Um, first of all, why did I choose this as a topic? Because it deals with virtue from the other end of the spectrum. What happens when we fail? What happens with sin um, when we lack virtue or when virtue comes into question? If the Donatist controversy is treated nowadays at all in seminaries and divinity schools, it is probably mentioned only briefly because perhaps in a survey course on church history, perhaps in a course on sacramental theology. What most students take away from this treatment, I am guessing, is at best only a general awareness that early on in the fourth century, a group of radical African Christians concluded that bishops who were in communion with other bishops who had handed over sacred books to Roman imperial officials during the Diocletian persecution were not real bishops, and that the sacraments they administered were neither valid nor efficacious. Now, what am I saying here? Um, there was a controversy. It broke out in, uh, in, in, in Africa in the fourth century, um, mid-fourth century. And it, it involved uh, Donat, a group of bishops who became known to be Donatists. They didn't start out that way. And uh, what they decided was that they were the only valid bishops in the entire Catholic Church, both Africa, Europe, Asia, everything. And the reason was that some bishops in Africa, we're talking about North Africa, Roman Africa really, had conspired with Roman imperial officials to hand over 
sacred books, scriptural codices, codicils and vessels to be destroyed. This was during the Diocletian persecution. Those bishops, according to the Donatists, had committed the sin of traditio, meaning handing over. And therefore, they were excommunicated. But worse, any sacrament that they performed was invalid. It didn't happen. Baptisms didn't happen. Eucharist didn't happen. Celebrated by all the bishops of the world, except these few bishops in Africa. Now, this was a local issue at first. In Rome, they didn't even know that they were excommunicated. Probably could care less. Uh, regarded it as an African matter, something small and contained. But in Africa, it set off a wildfire of controversy, and it grew. The Donatist bishops started to ordain their own bishops, creating, therefore, a schism in the church. Altar against altar, it was the saying. Bishops against bishops. We're talking about around 350 bishops in Roman Africa at the time. So it's not a small number. So this was called the Donatist controversy. And I'll have more to say about it a little further on. But this is just the basics of what happened. Students would have heard that against this viewpoint, St. Augustine established what would become the standard Catholic position on the sacraments, namely that their validity does not depend on the moral or spiritual condition of the minister, but upon Christ, who is the true minister of every sacrament. In other words, for Augustine, it didn't matter that some bishops had, had committed this traditio and that the bishops they ordained were invalidly ordained. The priests they ordained were invalidly ordained. It's like a contamination, right? If you get in, touched by a Catholic bishop in ordination, you are invalidly ordained. And if you get touched by a Donatist bishop, you are part of the Catholic Church. You are the true church. As far as it goes, such a treatment of this controversy is technically correct, and yet it is also inadequate. Indeed, the more we plunge into the Christian writings of this period, the more we understand the vision of the church and its holiness that Donatist bishops offered to their followers, as well as the appeal that this vision exerted over the latter. Why, why were people taken in by the Donatist argument? We're talking about the majority of Catholics in North Africa. Why were they taken in? By focusing on the appeal behind this Donatist logic, we can also understand better why Augustine opposed it with a paradoxical viewpoint about the church and its holiness. So here's the, here's the question of virtue entering in holiness. What constitutes the holiness of the church? 
For both Augustine and the Donatists, nothing that priests do matters more than to administer the sacraments, primarily baptism and Eucharist. Of course, both Augustine and the Donatists acknowledged that priests carry out other important ministries. They preach the word, teach, exhort, and console Christians in their faith. Yet nothing more than baptism and Eucharist communicates to believers the spiritual peace and reconciliation that constitute the ground of holiness. So the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist are necessary for holiness, the holiness of Christians. Hence, sacraments play an essential role in making Christians holy, and priests are inseparable from that process. This is the common ground that unites Augustine's position with that of his adversaries, and it is important ground. As to what divides them, I have already indicated that the key to understanding this lies in perceiving how each party imagines the church and the nature of the holiness that the church offers through its sacraments. To begin with the Donatists, they conceived of the church in the terms described by St. Paul at Ephesians 5.27, a church without stain or wrinkle. They meant by this that the church in its present historical condition was holy because all its members were holy, which is to say free of serious sin. The Donatists imagined themselves as the remnant of a once vast international church that had lost its soul through the corruption of its priests. They believed it was their mission to safeguard this remnant from contamination with the scandal of clerical betrayal that had so corroded the holiness of the Catholic Church that not only was it no longer capable of sustaining the true faith, it also destroyed the spiritual life of all those who came in contact with it with the same sin and scandal. In other words, if a priest was ordained to the priesthood by a bishop who was not a Donatist, so a Catholic bishop, that priest was guilty of the same traditio of those bishops long ago who handed over the sacred books and vessels to the imperial officials who had committed traditio. In other words, the sin of traditio could be communicated through sacramental ordination or through the practice of administering sacraments. Donatists saw themselves as the church of the martyrs, as the church that stands in continuity with those Christians who had remained faithful during Roman persecution. And their church had been purified by that persecution. In order to sustain that faith of their fathers, Donatists had to ensure that all their members became and remained holy throughout their lives. They saw their church as the only oasis in the desert constituted by a world of sin. In their view, the Catholic Church, so-called, had long ago betrayed itself and become indistinguishable from the pagan sinful world. Donatists felt threatened by this world. They trusted that their sacraments and their priests alone would ward off the sin 
that had destroyed the rest of the church. One of their bishops, Petillion of Constantine, interpreted Psalm 23 as the perfect description of the Donatist ideal. In doing so, he evoked the image of an oasis in the desert. Quote, he makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. The Donatist bishop contrasts the green pastures and the still waters in which the soul is restored with the valley of the shadow of death, representing the persecution that church members must endure in this life. Petillion says that this psalm refers to our baptism, meaning that when administered by his communion, the sacrament draws its recipient out of the wilderness and into the green pastures beside the still waters where he dwells secure all the days of his life until he dwells in the house of the Lord forever. For Petillion, defense of the Christian believer from the valley of the shadow of death is the function of priests whose sacrifices and prayers are efficacious only, only if their consciences are clean. In the following passage, Petillion addresses Catholic priests. So this is Petillion now writing to Catholic priests. If you make prayer to God or utter supplication, it profits you absolutely nothing whatsoever. For your blood-stained conscience makes your feeble prayers of no effect, because the Lord God regards purity of conscience more than the words of supplication. According to the saying of the Lord Christ, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a telling accusation. Petillion, who was a Donatist bishop, if I didn't say that, clearly states that when priests pray on behalf of the laity, God is more concerned with the priests' consciences than with the wording of their prayers. By claiming that all Catholic clergy possess blood-stained consciences, Petillion is not trying to tie Catholic priests individually to any particular personal sin. Instead, he is accusing them collectively of sharing in the guilt of their predecessors from a hundred years before. Never mind that the Catholic bishops and priests of Petillion's day had nothing to do with those crimes, a point Augustine repeatedly makes to his adversary. For Petillion, this collective sin constitutes the blood that will forever stain the consciences of, Christian, of Catholic priests and that voids the prayers and sacraments they offer. To understand Petillion's reasoning fully, we have to grasp two elements from his sacramental theology. The first concerns the way that a sacrament is communicated between the minister and the recipient. The second concerns impediments on the side of the minister. As far as baptism is concerned, Petillion declares that, quote, the conscience of him who gives in holiness is what we look for to cleanse the conscience of the recipient. I'll repeat that because it's really important. The conscience of him who gives in holiness is what we look for to cleanse 
the conscience of the recipient. He's talking about baptism. This statement must be examined closely. Battalion claims that what cleanses the conscience of the recipient of baptism is the clean conscience of the minister. His exact words are, the conscience of him who gives in holiness, conscientia sancte dantis. In order to understand exactly what Battalion's what Patillion may have meant by this expression, we have to proceed to the second element in his sacramental theology concerning impediments. This argument is harder to follow. Modern scholars who have tried to understand it suppose that for Patillion there are two kinds of sin, ecclesial and personal. Ecclesial sins, such as traditio, this is the handing over of the books and the sacred vessels to the imperial Roman officials to be destroyed. Traditio and heresy are few in number, but they are deadly to the church because they sap it of its holiness. The Donatists claim that this is what happened to the Catholic Church, not only in Africa, but throughout the world. In effect, by being in communion with those Catholic bishops who committed the sin of traditio, during the Diocletian persecution, the Catholic Church throughout the world was forever contaminated by the sin of a relatively small number of bishops. Thus, even 100 years later, Catholic bishops and priests remained the heirs of that sin and scandal, and their holy orders and the sacraments they administer are thus null and void. Donatist spirituality seems obsessed with materialist concepts rooted in Old Testament accounts of worship, such as ritual purity and its opposite, contamination or contagion. Sacramental validity depends on a material exchange or mediation between the priest and the recipient. In the case of baptism, the priest transfers his holiness to the recipient, as it were, cleansing the recipient's conscience with his own clean conscience. Similarly, when Donatists look at Catholics, they see that the priest transfers to the recipient his guilt, which he inherits from his church. This Donatist way of thinking establishes a concrete bonding between the priest and the recipient of the sacrament that makes the layperson's spiritual growth dependent on the priests. I have described one element of the Donatist conception of holiness, namely their view of the church as having to be without stain or wrinkle, along with Matillion's image of it as an oasis surrounded by a desert. When we align these images with their idea of a sacrament as the transfer of the priest's holiness to the laity, it becomes even clearer that Donatist theology is obsessed with holiness in a visible and tangible form. Donatism places a high stake in the appearance of holiness in its members. Accordingly, the church must be visibly, palpably holy, especially when one compares it with the world outside the church. Donatists insist on this strong, clear contrast between the holiness of the church and the sinfulness of the secular world. To this end, lay people yearn to see holiness reflected in their clergy 
and to feel it like a kind of Dolby surround. The role of the clergy is to mirror the church's ideal of holiness. In looking at the clergy, the laity should expect to see holy men, heroes of virtue, or at the very least, men who are free of sin. For the laity, therefore, the church's holiness takes bodily, personal form in bishops and priests. So long as the clergy appears holy, the laity can be certain that their church is holy and that as long as they remain in the church, they are safe from the world. So you see that for the Donatists, the church is holy and safe because the priests are holy and sinless. Augustine's answer to the Donatist perspective. Augustine thought that the Donatist idea of the priest was dangerous for all concerned. Obviously, it was dangerous for the priest because it encouraged him to see himself as a saint, not as a sinner. But it was even more dangerous for the Donatist laity for several reasons, all of them spiritually lethal. First, Augustine argued that there is something theologically and psychologically destructive for the laity in the fantasy of saintly priests. The fantasy of saintly priests, that is, priests who never sin. At one end of the scale, such priests risk becoming objects of infatuation. People will fawn over them, desirous of possessing for themselves the sanctity they project onto the priests. At the other end of the scale, the idea of saintly priests encourages people to make priests into objects of spiritual envy. Augustine held that in yearning to imitate the imagined holiness of their priests, many people, in effect, are striving to outdistance them. This is something I talked about this morning. In fact, he thinks that holiness is all too easily conceived as a personal achievement, something that the individual person accomplishes for himself. And we talked about this in relation to the Pelagian controversy. Augustine, on the other hand, thinks of holiness exclusively in terms of what God achieves in us, almost in spite of ourselves. At the top of the Donatist religious totem pole, one finds Christian martyrs, including Donatist martyrs, Donatists were taught to measure their holiness against the holiness of the martyrs, and herein lies the subtle introduction of envy and rivalry. After the martyrs come holy bishops. Augustine charges the Donatists with setting their clergy on a par with the angels as models for the laity to imitate, a practice he defined as a form of envy. Another danger that Augustine observes in this foe's spirituality is any special role for God, except as the remote and silent divine judge. We observed in Petillion's account of baptism that God's role was limited to judging whether the priest who administered the sacrament possessed a clean conscience. Augustine mocks Petillion's viewpoint. Clearly for the Donatists, Augustine argues, God's intervention in the purification of the recipient's conscience is unnecessary. 
They would rather believe that the only important actor in the sacrament is the priest who stands before them, the priest they can see and touch. Augustine accuses Donatists of preferring the priest's presumed holiness to God's real but invisible, intangible holiness. In fact, for Augustine, the more a religious community believes itself to be holy, the less it perceives its need for God. Augustine believes that if it does nothing else for us, sin teaches us that we need God. Augustine quickly understood that the Donatists' obsession with being the church without stain or wrinkle only reinforced their spiritual insecurity and encouraged them all the more to focus obsessively on the holiness of their priests. He accuses Donatists of teaching that it is only on account of the prayers of their bishops that God forgives the sins of the laity. Only on account of the prayers of the bishops that God forgives the sins of the laity. Donatist theologians who defended this view cited 1 Samuel 2.25, quote, If the people sin, the priest prays for them. If, however, the priest sins, who shall pray for him? As a proof text for their argument, this sentiment was rooted in the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament with its emphasis on cultic purity. According to this argument, only those priests who were truly holy and completely separated from the people were capable of offering a holy sacrifice, capable of satisfying God and gaining for the people divine pardon for their sins. Against this Donatist reasoning, Augustine argues that the most complete Christian interpretation of the role of Hebrew priests in the Old Testament understands them as symbols pointing to Jesus Christ as the only true high priest, a viewpoint embraced by the letter to the Hebrews. Augustine insists on many occasions and against different adversaries that Jesus Christ is the only human being ever to have lived perfectly free from every possible sin. We saw this this morning in terms of the Pelagian controversy. Christ alone in history, therefore, fulfills the Old Testament criteria for the high priest. Only his sacrifice is holy, and it alone perfectly atones for the sins of all people, including bishops and priests. Augustine charges the Donatists with losing sight of Christ's role as bridegroom of the church, a role he accused Donatist bishops of usurping. Donatists saw their bishops and priests as icons of holiness scattered within their communities in order to remind the laity that they constitute a holy people. In Augustine's view, only Christ can accomplish this task. He alone is the church's bridegroom. Augustine's view of the priest as pardoned sinner. But in addition to criticizing Donatist theology, Augustine offered his adversaries his own view of priesthood one that stressed the theme of priest as a pardoned sinner. To defend this view, he told the Donatists that he found it modeled by the apostles as recorded in the New Testament. Augustine recalls the incident reported at Acts 14, 8-18, in which Paul and Barnabas eschew attempts to worship them as gods following their performance of a healing miracle. 
He also refers to a similar example in the case of Peter, who directs pagans to honor God for the miracle that he performed, Acts 3, 12 to 13. Moreover, unlike Donatist bishops, the apostles did not hesitate to ask their fellow Christians to pray for them. Colossians 4.3, Acts 12.5, 1 John 2.1-2. Implicit in these biblical examples of the attitudes of the apostles is their recognition of themselves as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. We're talking about the apostles seeing themselves as sinners in need of pardon. And beside that, their public admission of their ardent desire for the prayers of the laity in order to obtain that pardon. So the laity had a role in praying for the pardon of priests for their sins. Augustine argues that priests of his day can do no better than to follow these examples of the apostles. He thought it important that in terms of personal holiness, priests not be thought of as constituting a separate priestly caste, but be seen as standing together with the laity as members of Christ's one body. Yes, he thought priests should strive for holiness, and he also recognized that the laity were right to expect their priests to remain faithful to the promises inherent in the clerical state. However, Augustine was also concerned that priests should not pretend to be holier than they were so they do not obscure Christ's unique status as the only truly righteous, saintly priest in history. The laity should learn to depend upon Christ as the sole source for sanctity in their lives, not upon their priests. One of the most beautiful and moving examples of Augustine's reflection on the priest as sinner is found in his commentary on the foot washing in John's Gospel. And that's John 13. Augustine interprets Jesus as determined to pardon his apostles for those sins they had committed while serving him in the ministry, as symbolized by their dirty feet. Hence, Augustine interprets Christ's insistence against Peter's objection to having him wash his feet as a divine instruction against both clerical pride and blindness to personal sin. Peter's reply that Jesus should wash not only his feet, but his whole body, along with Christ's response that the apostle has already been washed, a reference to baptism, offers Augustine another opportunity to remind the Donatists that forgiveness of sins is possible in the church even after baptism and even for bishops. In his meditation on the foot washing, Augustine couples John 13, 1 to 20 with Song of Solomon 5, 2 to 3. I slept, but my heart was awake. Hark, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it back on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Augustine identifies men who sleep while their hearts are awake with those Christians whose ecclesial vocation is contemplative and intellectual, say monks, for example. 
These Christians sleep in the sense that they are not actively working by preaching or teaching or counseling. Yet their hearts are awake in the sense that they study the sacred mysteries. In the voice of those who complain that they have already bathed their feet and do not want to get out of bed only to soil them again, Augustine sees those ministers whose apostolate is active and pastoral. These are the pastors, preachers, teachers, counselors, lectors, and cantors whose involvement with the laity is this, in the course of their ministry will necessarily lead them to sin, whether through pride or through other failings. Augustine recognizes that many of these clerics would rather resign their offices, so discouraged are they on account of the sins they commit while engaged in the active apostolate thus dirtying their feet. He reminds such individuals that it is Christ who calls upon them to get out of bed and open the door when they would rather remain occupied with less perilous tasks. In line with this thought, Augustine quotes the apostle James, who warns his readers to avoid commissioning many teachers because it is the most dangerous occupation but who also includes himself in his admission concerning teachers that we all make many mistakes. James 3, 1 to 2. By implication, Augustine argues that if the apostle James overcame his fear of teaching, despite his acknowledgement that he too had made many mistakes in doing so, clerics in his own day should not allow their fear of sinning to deter them from taking part in the act of apostolate. Christ is prepared to wash his disciples' feet repeatedly when they repent of their sins. But the same Christ also demands of his ministers that following their purification, they once again get out of bed and walk the dusty ground of the apostolate in answer to his call. In Book 10 of his Confessions, Augustine showed himself unafraid to indicate his own sinful past and present to his Donatist critics. It's a very interesting book, Book 10. Augustine talks about the sins that he is committing at the time that he's writing Book 10, when he's already a bishop, and he categorizes these sins. By way of conclusion, I wish to draw some parallels between Augustine's confrontation of the Donatist model of the priest as a saint with some of the difficulties surrounding the image of the priest in our own day. In many respects, it strikes me that several issues attached to the current clerical sexual abuse scandal are reminiscent of the Donatist controversy. It seems to me that the sinful, scandalous behavior of a relatively small number of Catholic clergy has exercised a disproportionately negative effect on the faith of many Catholics, beyond the victims of abuse and their families. Here I am not simply speaking of the widespread shock and anger which is shared by all good Catholics, including the popes whose pontificates have spanned the years of the scandal. I am speaking instead of a disillusionment with the whole of the Catholic clergy that borders on despair and has induced in some countries widespread religious indifference, new forms of anti-clericalism, and even defections within the Catholic community. 
I wonder whether these phenomena do not indicate an affinity with certain Donatist assumptions about the nature of holiness in the church and its relationship to clerical holiness. Please understand that I am not speaking about the reactions of the actual victims of clerical abuse or about those who are close to them. Nor am I referring in any way to the suspicion with which all of us who are priests are by now accustomed to experiencing from some lay people who have children. But I do ask whether a certain spiritual idealization of the priest has not contributed in some way to the extensive negative feelings of many Catholics toward their faith in the light of this scandal. After all, Donatism was nurtured on the concept that the grave sin and scandal committed by a few bishops had contaminated the entire Catholic clergy and that nothing could be done about it except to leave the Catholic Church. Is there not today, as in every age, a strong force within believers to see the church as a holy refuge from a sinful world, as a spiritual oasis in the desert? Are there not too many Catholics who want to see their bishops and priests as living icons of the sacred, as men with supernatural capacities to overcome sin completely in their lives? Is there not a tendency among Catholics to understand the mediatorial role of priests in the dispensation of sacraments too closely along Donatist lines in such a way that the personal holiness of the priest or lack of it positively or negatively influences the extent to which the sacrament is thought to communicate holiness to the believer? Finally, is there not something quasi-materialist in the understanding of sanctity on the part of many contemporary Catholics whose obsessive need for visible and tangible holiness contributes to profound disillusionment with their church when some of their bishops and priests are discovered to be ambitious, avaricious, lascivious, or to be sinners and criminals with other vicious tendencies. It further seems to me that the Catholic clergy itself may be contributing to its own spiritual idealization by not taking advantage of the pulpit and other occasions to stress a more Augustinian theology of priesthood. The year of priests, which we celebrated some years ago, presents an opportunity for priests to acknowledge publicly, but only in an appropriate manner, their own sinfulness, and to invite the lay faithful to pray that God forgives them and gives them the grace to overcome their sins. Augustine saw that part of the solution to the Donatist controversy lay in a pastoral leveling of the playing field between priests and people, where the question of personal holiness was concerned. The more clergy and laity undertake a common commitment to each other's progress in personal holiness, the less priests will reinforce their distinction from the laity as a separate holy caste, and the less lay people will allow clerical moral weakness to undermine their faith in Christ and his church. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.